G'day guys, how are we all? Uh, we're back with another throwback episode this time around. Uh, we're having a chat to Mitch Hodgson. Uh, I believe from memory it was about uh, a lot of small dragons and small skinks um, and maybe some licensing bits and pieces as well. Uh, should be an interesting conversation. This was about three or four years old. So naturally with anything around these throwback episodes, uh, technical difficulties are likely to occur um, thanks to the Facebook live streams that I was using at the time. Uh, and I will be a lot higher pitched voice than what I am today as well. Uh, I hope you get something out of this and enjoy. Thank you very much. There we go. All right. Now we got hey. All right, we're back. All right, so today we have Mitch Hodge, Hodgson, yeah, from Weirds and yep, Beards that's it. with the dragons, monitors, and all sorts of other things. Um, let's get it going. Um, we'll start off with how did the reptile obsession for you begin? Um. So I'm not, I guess, the standard one. I mean, everyone, a lot, well, not everyone, a lot of people in reptiles always say, oh, I've had the obsession for a bajillion years. Um, you know, since I was a kid, I was doing X, Y, Z. I wasn't really like that. I was actually more interested in, uh, I wasn't even really that interested in captive animals, to be honest. I was, um, I, I like had pet dogs and cats and things like that. Um, but yeah, one day I sort of, I think one of our cats died or the dog died or something like that. It got pretty old. And I sort of went, oh, I'd be interested in something a bit different from just the standard animal. Um, and I ended up buying some hopping mice from Gumtree um, and thought they were pretty cool. Then I ended up getting a pet lizard. And then at that time I was in uni and I was doing my undergraduate focusing on marine science and things like that. Um, and I got really interested in lizards, ended up volunteering more with uh, a lizard lab at uni, ended up getting more pet lizards and kind of went from there. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, now with the uni stuff, let's go straight into that. Uh, you've spoken a few times about yeah, doing you your um, PhD about the Jackie Dragons. Give us some backstory behind that yep. uh, or how that's gone or going. Yeah, yeah, sure thing. So um, at the moment, my PhD is focusing on uh, sort of uh, thermal responses that Jackie Dragons have had and could potentially have to different types of climates. So it sort of focuses on how both sort of evolutionary, so, you know, genetic changes over time, as well as plastic sort of responses can sort of, how they, how, how Jackie Dragons and ideally using them as a model to sort of represent a lot of other lizards similar to them, um, how they have responded to different climatic regimes and how they could potentially respond with uh, changing climates and things like that. Uh, yeah, um, and what's, what's more important, is evolution going to be more important or plasticity? Yeah. And, um, and just as a, a context thing for those that yeah. might not know what plasticity is, um, that's kind of like where within lifetime you change something. So like you put a plant near a window and it grows towards the, uh, grows towards the sun. That's a plastic response. So sort of things like that, how lizards change their thermal physiology and biology and things like that in response to what they're experiencing. Just as a, a quick FYI, I always realize when I say plasticity, a lot of people have no idea what that is. <laughs> yeah. 
And um, what sort of things have you been able to notice or experience through this uh, line of study that you're doing? Um, well, so it started off, I did my, so when I first started working with them, I did a project in my undergrad. I actually got a, a scholarship um, to sort of research um, a, a very, like it's a conceptual idea called the costs and benefits of thermoregulation. So look, sort of looking at um, the challenges that reptiles face with needing to thermoregulate and how different temperatures and different uh, changes in temperature and things like that affect them. Um, and so that's kind of where I started off and we found a pretty, you know, intuitive response that when we made it harder and made the temperature change more and things like that, the lizards found it harder to thermoregulate and weren't thermoregulating as well. Um, and then from that, I sort of moved into what my honours was. And with that, we basically found that the lizards from, so I sampled a couple of wild populations of Jackie dragons around Sydney. And we basically found the lizards from the colder sort of regions up in the Blue Mountains actually had uh, hotter, like they preferred hotter temperatures. So they would, um, their preferred body temperature they wanted to sit at, the voluntary maximum minimum temperatures they'd let their body get to, as well as um, sort of the upper sort of temperature limits. So in thermal sort of research, there's a, a few different measures. Uh, the most intense ones basically where you heat up an animal to the point where it sort of goes into shutdown. We didn't do that. We did one slightly below that. Um, but basically we found that the guys that were in the colder environments were better or had would, would did prefer um, hotter temperatures, which is a bit counterintuitive. We didn't expect to see that. We thought that we'd find the guys in the, the colder environments would have um, colder preferences and that sort of reflect like would reflect the fact that it's a colder environment in there that they're in. Um, and sort of one of the ideas we came up with um, as to why and sort of worked with a few other sort of publications and some other ideas and research about it was basically that the lizards themselves heat themselves up more. So they want to get hotter in those cold periods. Um, and that helps them grow a lot quicker. And particularly the cooler in your environment is, the quicker you can grow and the bigger you get by the time the first winter comes around, the more likely you are to survive. Yep. So we think that they prefer that hotter temperature just so that they can grow a bit more so that they can survive that first winter. So it all sort of cycles through and they can reproduce that next summer. Spring, spring mm. summer. Interesting. So yeah, I mean, those are some of the cool things I've found in my research side of things. I mean, the other stuff that's really cool is like all the sort of little observations you get. So, you know, just sort of um, trying to think of some good ones. Like I, at the moment for my PhD, the whole point is sampling, or one of the big projects is sampling across a number of uh, populations across the range. So I've basically hit the base of Queensland. Um, I haven't actually gone into Queensland um, to collect them. They only just get into Queensland. But basically from Northern New South Wales down to Victoria, I've been sampling them. Um, and it's cool just seeing the differences in the population. So like some of the South Coast guys have really nice yellows and reds in them. Some of the guys from around Canberra had really nice bottle greens and lime greens and you know, just a lot of other things. I guess you don't really notice you see it and you go, oh, that's a Jackie Dragon um you know you do pick up on so yeah those are those are just some of the things i've seen really um but yeah they're a really cool lizard to work with um i really enjoy i mean again a lot of people like it's just a jackie dragon and i mean i'm in that boat i've caught well over 200 jackie dragons now um and believe me i've been exposed to them as much as anyone else but i still find them a pretty cool little lizard yeah they're definitely one of my favorites to find just because of how they react to different things <laughs> 
Oh, absolutely. They're very attentive little things. Um, even I was um, away helping my, my partner's doing her honors at the moment on frogs. And as we were driving around earlier this week, um, going out to one of the sites, we saw a Jackie basking and, you know, you could have the obligatory stop and watch and just see what they do and how they're focusing and, you know, where their attention is. So yeah, it's good fun. Yeah. And um, what else have we got here? Um, I guess you briefly covered on where you've gone um, to re get the animals. So you said you've done what from northern New South Wales down to Vic. Would I, yeah, about that? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So basically, um, up in the granite belt. Uh, so we're doing both, I guess, high elevation and low elevation populations along the range. Um, so the high elevation ones we got from northern New South Wales were up in the granite belt region. So Leninus, um, Inverell, all that sort of area around there. Um, moving down sort of uh, mid-north coast uh, is where we got some more than obviously around Sydney. Um, further down, we did the south coast, did around Canberra area. Um, and then, yeah, in Vic, I did in the Vic Alps up near Snowy, uh, Snowy Mountain National Park, one of the national parks, Snowy River, I can't remember, sorry. Uh, one of the national parks up there. Um, and then down in Gippsland as well. Yeah. Sounds like you've covered a big range of environments as well to get different results. Yeah, yeah. So definitely, I mean, uh, and the cool thing is as well, we're sampling between populations which are using different sort of habitats. So obviously for those that are familiar with Jackies, they sort of, a lot of them will sort of inhabit coastal scrub while other ones will inhabit sort of, um, I guess, uh, woodlandy sort of uh, areas and things like that. So, you know, there's a wide range of habitats we've been sampling from, and we're also taking sort of habitat and microhabitat data as well. Um, so where they, where they bask in their habitat, what sort of temperatures it's at, where they're basking, what their body temperature's at when we catch them, um, things like that. And then a number of other climatic variables and things like that. But um, no, they're... Um, they're yeah they're super nicely then that's the reason i basically we're using them is, is that they're a very common species and they're somewhat widely dispersed so there's a nice long gradient you know what i mean yeah, yeah. um one of these things people always think about in science is like oh wouldn't it be cool to work on xyz super rare super hard to find super blah 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 species to learn more about it um and for like you know taxonomy and uh you know questions about the ecology of species and things like that you know that is a really interesting thing to work out but it's very very small that you have to work with a very constrained population or things like that yeah so when you want to ask broader scale questions really common species where you can get a lot of animals for a lot of like data replicates that have wide ranges that are you know easy to maintain in captivity as well all those sorts of things uh, if you do want to do sort of captive questions and things like that but um all those factors make them really good model organisms and so that's kind of why um a lot of people have actually used jackies and jackies are a very in Australia, they're a pretty common uh, model lizard that a lot of people use along the East Coast. So um, a lot of guys at UCID, that uh, one particular person who worked in Rick Shine's lab, for those that know Rick Shine, did a lot on Jackies for his, or did his PhD on Jackie Dragons um, and did work on them after that. Um, early, or Macquarie University, an academic there, used to do a lot of signaling of Jackie Dragons. And now he's at Latrobe and he still does a lot of signaling work with them looking at not just Jackies, but the gamuts overall and how visual signaling has evolved. Um, one of the people that I've worked with at uh, UNSW, um, who I did some volunteering for and sort of uh, worked with there, he's worked with Jackies before. 
So, you know, they're a very common, I guess, model organism because they just are so well known. I mean, uh, the other good one, ANU also did a lot on Jackie Dragon. So they looked at the, um, the different genetic lineages of them. So Jackies have sort of four, they're not quite different species, but they're genetically distinct lineages across their range. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they're a very well-known organism. And the fact that there's all that information behind them also is quite useful yeah. um, in making and asking better questions. Yeah, I did a little project on them in the first half of the school year. Um, and you could tell that they've very well documented because there's heaps of different papers and studies on them. So it's easy to get different resources. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and that's super, super beneficial. And I mean, in many ways you can ask yourself, oh, wouldn't this be cool to look at or wouldn't this be awesome to do? And you can sort of look at what other people have done and you sort of go, uh, it's, it's been not done, but like, you know, this kind of implies that it might not be worth the time to do. Yeah. So, and again, that's one of the benefits of working with an organism that's were relatively well known, that you can make those sort of inferences, yeah. um, and sort of design a good experiment around them as well. Yeah. And, um, with the different locations that you've gone to and the different, uh, groups that you've caught, have you noticed severe color differences between them? To based on their environment? Um, I wouldn't say severe. Um, I, there's definitely color variations. I can't say if it's environmental. Like, there's definitely, so as I sort of said earlier, a lot of the guys I found around Canberra and even some of the guys I found in Western Sydney had like a bottle green look to them rather than the standard gray. Um, ones down, I found down on the south coast had sort of yellows and reds through them. Um, and I've got a photo somewhere buried on my computer of a really nice sort of yellowy red one. Um, but, you know, again, they're sort of ones that stand out in populations too. Like a lot of them still in those areas are still that standard grey colour. Um, but, yeah, there's definitely a bit of colour variation within them. And, I mean, it could it probably does relate to something important like that, like habitat. So, you know, there's either a camouflage effect or it could be a whole manner of reasons. I'm not super-duper familiar with sort of those colour aspects. Yeah. Um, well, I there's the Jackie Dragons that are near my house. They're, the environment that they're based around is often like a grey kind of rock and that their coloration yeah. reflects that. And then I've got friends that live in Canberra who have see, I've seen pictures of theirs that are more of a dark coloration to represent like the tr fallen trees and things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's definitely a well-documented thing. I mean, one of the great examples is if you look at the Pilbara monitors, uh, like the Hammersley Range monitor, the Hamelianthus, Varanus Hamelianthus, they are a beautiful sort of iron band red to match the rock cliffs or rock sort of faces they sit on, you know, and there are those sorts of, I guess, evolutionary moves where things do reflect the habitat they're in. Yeah. And um, moving on from the Jackie Dragon stuff, let's go into the New South Wales Mammal Licensing. Um, for those that don't know, what's yeah, that? Yeah. And uh, how's that going for you? Um, so just as a, a quick fill in on it, I guess, uh, for those that aren't aware, New South Wales is having a, a major review of the licensing system here uh, for reptiles, birds, amphibians, and uh, mammals. And so mammals was something that was addressed in the so what prompted the review was there was a discussion paper that a number of academics produced when they were asked by the government and they basically said you need to start regulating things appropriately so if it's a least concerned skink that no one cares about 
we kind of need to start thinking, okay, let's take down some of the regulation on that. While if it's say something that's highly sought after in captivity or endangered in the wild, it needs more regulation than it's getting at the moment. So the reality is, is that all the conservation agencies and all the regulatory agencies only have X amount of dollars and they need to start using that money more effectively to regulate what they need to regulate well. Um, and so what happened is they brought about this review. Uh, in the, the initial paper, it said that they wanted to promote people interacting more with mammals, reptiles, birds, etc. Um, they released a discussion paper putting out what they were planning to do to regulate it all and how they were planning to regulate all these different things. Mammals was sort of addressed in that, so they said they weren't planning on making any changes. Uh, we sort of uh, banded together and established our group, which is the Mammal Society in New South Wales, got incorporated and then lodged a submission basically saying that we wanted it to be addressed. Um, it all sort of started to get addressed. It was all going through. We got accepted on as official stakeholders. Uh, we started going to all the meetings. Then we even got our own mammal specific meetings where we put forward ideas. And then all out of nowhere, we got an email that said it was now permanently halted, um, that nothing was going to be happening, um, and that we needed to wait on some correspondence. Um, and basically what happened and what we've sort of found out in discussions with people is that the Animal Welfare Lobby um, wrote directly to the Minister for the Environment and made a number of complaints. What those complaints are, we don't know, but they were severe enough that they stopped the whole review process. Um, and now we're waiting on, it's in limbo to be honest. So it's kind of, it's very frustrating. I mean, I've put a lot of time into it. Other people involved in the mammal push put a lot of time into it. Um, in all honesty, we've done a hell of a lot of work to make the argument. I mean, we put forward all the figures from the other states. Um, we've got interstate people promoting it. We've got, you know, all these different vets on board, you know, there's been a huge uh, effort. And the reality is, is that particularly for the animal welfare lobby, um, a lot of their arguments are quite, I guess, ideological. So I remember it got to one point in the meeting where there was a, a member from our, our Office of Environment and Heritage. Um, and he asked some of the welfare lobby guys, what do you guys think about this? Like, what, what would you like to see? And one particular person said, oh, look, I don't think it should happen. And he's like, oh, what's the reasoning for that? And he said, oh, look, these things are better in the bush. We don't believe they should be in captivity. Um, and it kind of just all their arguments came back to that. It wasn't about making sure there was proper animal welfare or anything like that. It was back to this full-blown animal liberationist stance. Um, and I mean, they're totally entitled to have that opinion. I mean, there are some things, you know, that people really want to debate and don't think things should be in captivity. Um, there's some things I think that, you know, we need to review in captivity in some ways. Um, but there's, you know, trying to discuss it from, I guess, a government standpoint, that's not really an argument you can sit on. Um, but yeah, again, I don't actually know the full extent of what they did in this letter to the minister. I just know that a letter to the minister was lodged by a number of welfare organisations, including a number of animal rehabilitation organisations and the RSPCA. Um, and yeah, it's just kind of stopped the whole process in its tracks. So yeah, we're just kind of in limbo waiting for some sort of response. And then, yeah, we, we sent a letter to the minister asking for information on what was happening and, um, a letter sort of following it all up and going, you know, we put a lot of work into this and they've done something that's now last minute to Shanghai at all. So it'd be nice to know what's actually happened. <laughs> um, that's rough. 
but yeah, so I mean, it's, it's just a frustration and you can't really get past it. Whatever they've done has done something effective. Um, so yeah. Mm. Oh, well, hopefully that, uh, that gets all sorted and then you can keep going. You just have to wait and see, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, this is the, the reason a lot of us have put so much time into it is that as I'm sure you're aware, being from Vic, where their reviews are very, uh, few and far between, um, this is our only real chance in the near future to get this sort of change addressed. <laughs> so we'd much rather take the opportunity now and try and push for it. Um, because the last time mammals were discussed in New South Wales was close to 50, between 15 and 20 years ago, 2002, I believe it was. So, I mean, given we've got the chance now, we might as well fight for it. Mm, yeah, that's one of the issues is how long it takes for the different reviews to come around. For us, it's every 10 years. I don't think the next one's till 2023, I think, thereabouts. Yeah, wow. That's, um, and I mean, I've got some of the information, yeah, from your 2013 review. So we use that for the mammals because I think Vic was, reptiles were pretty unsuccessful. A few reptiles got added during that review, but the vast majority of things that did get accepted were mammals. So I, I got sent a list from um, someone down in Vic. I can't remember. I think it might have been Ash. Ash Horn sent it through. But I know, funnily enough, one of the species that got rejected was Varanus berichi, which um, I find hilarious because they added Varanus michelai, which is much more less held in captivity compared to berichi, at least to my knowledge. I mean, there could be bajillions of them out there, but, um, you know, berichi seemed like the safer conservation option. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, we just have to wait and see what happens there too. Now let's move yeah, into exactly. the I mean, let's move into the animals that you've got. Um, yeah. What would you like to talk about first? Monitors, dragons, or other things? I'll leave it up to you. Um. Uh, I don't know. I hard to say. I, I like them. All. I guess I'll start with dragons because that's where my main sort of passion is. Though I do have quite a few monitors I really like. So yeah. yeah. Um, all right. So um. What dragons? Uh, what are the main species that you're keeping and breeding this year? Uh, so for dragons, um, I've had quite a few things start to go, which is quite nice. Um, so this year, things that I, so things I've already had hatch. I've had Jackie dragons already hatch. I've had central bearded dragons already hatch. I've had Burns dragons already hatch, and I've just had some knobby dragons hatch as well. Um, I was pretty happy the burns were a species I really wanted to breed this season. Um, and it's getting to the point now where I don't want to breed anymore because I've got 47 eggs incubating now, um, which is, you know, probably the, the market capacity of burns dragons. So I'm going to, I've spoken to a lot of people about it and everyone's like, no, don't, don't, don't freeze the eggs. And I'm kind of going to be like, well, you're not the ones that have to find homes for these things and rear them and, you know, feed them and. Oh, hang on. It's paused on your end. Oh, oh yeah. Um, so I'm probably going to yeah. start freezing the eggs after that. So I've got one female that's gravid at the moment, but, and you know, if they go next year, they go next year, but um, I'm not going to keep that many eggs just cause, you know, I mean, I've bred last year, I've got still got yearling um, Western netted dragons and yearling, um, Goldfields ringtail dragons. Um, and the reality is, is like, you know, I love dragons. They're one of my, they probably are my favorite group to keep. Um, no, they actually, they are my favorite group to keep. Um, but they are very much a niche group. Um, and that's sort of led to a number of issues. So 
in particular the states that have lists so victoria and new south wales have a very limited scope of well not a super limited scope but a limited scope of what dragon species you can keep um which makes it a bit harder to move things on um especially to people that want to keep them um big one probably is vic vic's got a fairly limited uh list uh, as i'm sure you're aware yeah. um and quite a few things on the Vic list are pretty much extinct in captivity now, but a handful of people that still maintain them. Um, so yeah, but it's one of those things where you've just got to, you know, you got to do the right things by the animals and find them homes and things like that. So I don't really want to get stuck with a billion Burns dragons. Um, but yeah, so I've got those, uh, the knobby dragons I'm really excited for. I've got three clutches now and three glare gravid females. Um, one of them was testing yesterday, but I haven't seen a testing today. Um, so that's pretty cool. Um, I might take a break from long nose dragons this year. So I bred a few of them last year. Um, I've still got a few ones from last year around, but the, the thing with long nose is there's a lot of people breeding them now and that's not, not an issue at all. It's pretty good. Cause they're awesome. Like if anyone wants a, a dragon that they want to sort of keep, that isn't a, not like bearded dragon, they want something a bit different. If you don't want a central netted dragon, the long nosed dragons are by far one of the best. Um, sorry, just gonna get that. Um, so yeah, they're a pretty good one. Um, so yeah, they're pretty pretty good, but I'll take a break from them. I think just because I know there's about twenty people breeding them um, in various states, so you know it's good to sort of stay on top of that. Um, I've got western netted dragon eggs incubating again, um, which will be nice. Um, so my big issue with the Western netted's moving them on is that, uh, I had quite a few eggs last season. Um, quite a few went off during incubation and then quite a few of the hatchlings actually died fresh out of the egg. Um, what caused that? I have no idea. Um, and I actually, I kind of suspecting it might've been like a line issue that maybe some of the lizards from that sort of line weren't particularly strong lizards. Um, I mean, the male I've got's been great, but I've had issues with the females from, uh, that sort of lineage. Um, so I got a, another female from a friend of mine um, and his is F1 generation. So the parents were legal wild caught. And then um, I've got one of the offspring of that, which is one of the girls. And so, yeah, she laid a clutch of six the other day um, and she's gravid again and going to hopefully punch out some babies. Other than that, I got uh, pygmy bearded dragons that I've got eggs for. Um, not too many centrals, um, Western bearded dragon. So I've got about 20 something Western bearded dragon eggs, minor, minor, um, Swamplands Lashtails. I've got, uh, two clutches and nine, but quite a few of the first clutch have already gone off. Um, Tommy Roundhead's gravid. She looks like you could poke her with a, I'll see if I can just take you over here. Actually, she looks like you could poke her with a stick and she'd explode. Um, Get me beautiful. So, very gravid Tommy Roundhead. Yeah. Um, there you go, beautiful. Um, uh, the Goldfields Ringtails are gravid again. One of the females is. Um, yeah, I think that um, my Crested Dragon female looks like she's ovulating. She doesn't look gravid, but she definitely is, you know, how they sort of balloon up and look really fat. So she's done that, which is quite cool. Um, 
And I think that's the bulk of it. I haven't actually had much action from my red bards. I've seen them mating and doing things like that, but there's been no signs of them being gravid, um, just sort of running around. And, yeah, that's the bulk of the dragons, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And um, out of all the species of dragons, is there one in particular that you enjoy the most or are enjoying the most? Um, of all the dragons, I actually am super, super keen. Like, the bulk of what I have is Tenophorus species, so from the genus Tenophorus. Um, and the reason for that is that they're the, probably the easiest of the small dragons to acquire. Um, my favourite dragons to keep, though, are probably the Diperifera genus, so the Nobby Dragons, the Tommy Roundheads, things like that. Um, and so, yeah, I, I quite enjoy keeping them. They're really fun, nifty little animals that really don't need much space. Um, so, yeah, I, I'd probably say I enjoy keeping them the most. Um, and I mean, they're, that's, they're probably the main ones at the moment. I mean, don't get me wrong, I enjoy keeping all of them. They're all interesting and unique in their own way. Um, if I was to choose a best, I'd probably say animals from the genus Diperifera are my favourite. And if I was to choose a worst, I'd probably say Pagona's my least favourite dragons to keep. Not because they're bad. They're actually awesome lizards. I'm just not super into them, really. I mean, some of the, the cooler ones, like the Nullarbor bearded dragons and the, um, the Kimberly ones, yeah. uh, both of which I don't think... Kimberleys were once in captivity, but I don't think they are anymore. Um, not to say that someone doesn't have them. Uh, and same with the Nullabors, to my knowledge, have never been in captivity. Um, but both of them look really, really cool, and they're really nifty-looking lizards, so they're quite cool. And I do like the Minor Minor, and the Henry Lawson and I are pretty cool too. But, um, yeah, Viticeps are just one of those species that they eat so much food. Mm. Um, and, I mean, we, we've got a few of them, and they're definitely our pets rather than anything else. Um, yeah. But, yeah, they just eat a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, my favourite out of the bearded dragons is definitely the Kimberly ones. I hope that uh, even if it's just a zoo or something, picks them up just so you, there's some in captivity because they'll be awesome. Yeah, and they, they totally would be. And I mean, the thing, I've had this discussion with other like hardcore dragon sort of keepers before. Um, they're on the New South Wales list, which implies at least at some point someone had them or... I don't know. So for those that don't know what happened with the New South Wales list at many points, they had amnesties where people literally just said, I've got this. And if the, you know, OEH thought it was really sus, they went out and checked. But if they didn't think it was that sus or didn't care too much, they didn't. So someone could have literally said, I've got Kimberly um, Bearded Dragons. And they got added. So I don't know. I honestly don't know the situation, but they're on the New South Wales list and I'm pretty sure there aren't any really left in captivity. You just need to find a collector that would be willing to go and do it. And then go from there. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. One of the issues with a lot of stuff is, um, particularly with WA, getting any form of legal wild collection for things that are on their species list is quite challenging. Um, and most of it, I think, sort of circumnavigated sort of ways where it, like, comes off a, a research permit or something like that. So I've been told I don't actually know the situation behind it for a lot of the WA endemics. Um, or due to a bit of taxonomic uncertainties, how a few things have also ended up in captivity. Like, I think the bush eye, as I understand it, um, were in captivity as cordoliniatus before they got split out. Um, and that's how they sort of were around. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, it's very hard to get those things. But one of the good things is, is that if they are something that just goes into the Northern Territory just slightly and there's a population on the Northern Territory side, um, they can be yeah. really well collected easily in the Northern Territory, yeah. 
And I mean, the Northern Territory does have a pretty good legal wild collect system to get those sorts of species in. Um, there's a few issues with it, I've been told, um, not from the collector's point of view, but just I know that a few of the um, non-Northern Territory uh, departments don't particularly like the system. Um, but, you know, it's not their jurisdiction, so they can't really go too far into it. Yeah, that's. Uh, I've got a friend that does wildlife demos in uh, in Alice Springs. Oh no, in um, oh yeah, Yolara, which is next to the Rock, and um, he's got yeah, yeah. heaps of Centralian blue tongues that have all been. Uh, he collect collected them, and he was going out and he told me when we were there that he was going to go and collect um, NT Western blue tongues from the oh, one yeah. of the southern points. And try and breed them, and then go from there with them, which would be something different. Yeah, I mean, those NT sort of locales and variations and things like that have been quite popular. Like I know a lot of people um, I've spoken to are really keen for NT Brevi Quarter again. So a lot of Brevi Quarter out there are WA ones, but a lot of people kind of want more NT ones. I don't actually know the difference between the two. I'm not going to lie. I just know that there's a bit of demand for the NT um, locality. Um, and then the other cool thing with NT Wild Collects is how a lot of other things have popped up. So I just know from dragon people, things like uh, Amphibularis centralis, so the Centralian Lashtail dragons, came into captivity through Illegal Wild Collect. Chameleon dragons came into captivity through Illegal Wild Collect in the NT. Um, Tenophorus clayi came in through that. Isolepis, Tenophorus isolepis. Um, a whole heap of things have sort of come in that way. Yeah. Um, for Benetai. Somebody's just got a wild collect to get those back into captivity. So to, I think, most, well, my understanding and maybe a few other people, Benatai and Magna are basically extinct in captivity now. There might be a few people that have them, but they're pretty much gone. So those permits have sort of come in to bring those species back. But I mean, it's one of those things, you know, it's not like you go grab 80 of the animals, you get given a permit for five or six and yeah. sort of go from there. Yeah. And um, with the dragons, is there a species that you want that you don't currently own? Yeah, so um, hands down, I've been busting my ass to try and get chameleon dragons added to the New South Wales list. Um, I think they're really, really cool looking animals. I really like them. Um, and they are, to my knowledge, also I've been told, held in uh, Queensland. So hopefully can get them on the list and then get some down from Queensland. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, now let's move into monitors. Um, what are the main species yep. that you're working with or the main species that you've got? So monitor-wise, I've got uh, quarter lineatus, um, so striped tail monitors. I've got ridge tail monitors. I've got a few of those. Uh, Varanus brevicorda, so short-tailed monitors. Um, Berici, uh, Varanus berici. Um, I've got a sangoanna. I've got male sangoanna. Um, I've got a lace monitor. Um, else uh, I think that's the bulk of the monitors actually um, yeah and um, so, out of, I haven't got too many monitors out of those which is the one that you are enjoying the most at the moment so uh, a good 50 50 split I really enjoy the um, quarter lineatus are a big favorite of mine and the Barici are another big favorite of mine um, so yeah, both of them are pretty schmick animals, I think. Quarters are, I think, 
I, I say this to a lot of people. I actually think um, Brevi Quarter are slightly overrated for what they are. Like, they're cool lizards, but I think they're definitely overhyped by a few people. Um, and, I th and I personally, I mean, this is my opinion, uh, I think Quarters are much more fun captives and much more interesting than Brevi's. Brevi's kind of, like, they get active and they run around and they sort of shovel and do these cool things, but Quarters just are much more, like, they sort of scurry and, like, climb up branches and climb around trees and things. So I, I'm really quite partial to them. Um, and the Barichi, I mean, I'm not going to lie, they're just a glorified Aki in many ways, but they're just so pretty. Um, and my, my pair, so I've got a, a trio, a male and two females. Um, my male's pretty, he was pretty thin when I got him and he wasn't going too well. I actually got given him with the female when I bought the female. Um, and I ended up getting him some vet help and he's put on a lot of weight. But he's always been a pretty relaxed kind of guy. The big female has just been a dream. She's an absolute beautiful lizard to handle. The young female I recently got's pretty skittish, um, but she's she's a really really nice looking Barichi. So she's got really crisp patterns. Um, so yeah, I mean they I mean I'm not gonna lie, they're just like a slightly prettier version of an Aki, but they are really cool animals. I really like them. Yeah, that's... And I think my, at least the three, even though the, the girl's a bit skittish, the young one, I think they've all got slightly better personalities than most of the Yakis I have. That's one species that I really wish gets added to Vic, Vic next time they do their, um, you know, when they change the licenses and stuff. Because, yeah, that's that for me, yeah, that's yeah, a, well, one, that's a big one species, just because from what I've seen, they look amazing. Yeah, and that's it. I mean, the thing is with them as well, there's a heap of locale variation in captivity. So my main pair are Cape Crawford locality. Um, the other female kind of looks like it, but I'm not going to say what the locality is because I asked the seller and they didn't know what it was. Um, there's uh, other localities. So um, Rob Grabowski has Adelaide River locality ones. Um and I'm sure there's probably a lot more floating around, but it's just one of those things where, again, with NT Wild Collects and stuff, people just have these things and, you know, you know the locality because you know where they were collected from. Yeah. Um, now, with the monitors, which would you say is the rarest species in captivity that you've got? Or actually, let's do that with both monitors and dragons. Um, with dragons... Hard to say. I've got a few I would think are pretty scarce in the hobby. Not that they're like worth money or anything. Again, with the whole idea with dragons, they're all things that you know people haven't really. There's never been like a, a a wide community hobby interest in them. They are really a true, I guess, hobbyist species, like a real specialist species. And there are a lot of people that are showing interest now in them. Um, but I mean, probably the diperiferid dragons are fairly hard to come by. Um, so. They're ones that I would say are quite sparse. Uh, on the East Coast, I mean, both Minor Minor and um, Western Netteds are somewhat uh, hard to come by, though the, there's a few down in uh, Victoria now, so there's quite a few Western Netteds down in Victoria now. Um, Burns Dragons are fairly uncommon. Uh, Red Barred Dragons aren't that uncommon. Um, yeah, I should say, actually, just quick backtracking because I just looked at the tank. Um, I also have Turkey Creek locality, um, King Orem, Baron's King Orem, so long tail rock monitors. And they're another really cool one, actually. I think, again, they, along with Quarters, go on the list of things that I still find better than Brevi Quarter. <laughs> uh, 
Um, sorry for all the hardcore Bradby fans out there. I mean, they are cool lizards, don't get me wrong, but I just think there's a lot of other species that haven't been caught up in the hype and are better lizards to keep. Yeah. And um, um, with the monitors, which species do you think is the most difficult that you've got? Uh, Keeping-wise, a lot of monitors I find fairly straightforward. Um, I mean, the thing with the eye, and I, I, this is kind of my personal keeping philosophy, a lot of things, as long as you give them the right, I think there's a lot of commonality between species and then there's a few exceptions to the rule. Um, but as long as you give them, like I'm a big advocate of good quality UV light, good quality natural light, good quality everything sort of light. And then I actually keep things probably a lot hotter than most people do. Um, and I think that's probably across most species quite good and that's how they thrive. So I actually find a lot of species keeping wise are, are really easy to maintain. Um, ones that I would say are easy to maintain but harder to breed. And I guess this is because I haven't really um, had any success with them thus far are the breeches. So both my females have laid and both clutches have been write-offs entirely. Um, and to be completely honest, I've also had really crap success with Aki. So I've had three Aki clutches laid this season um, that have all been duds. Um, and a Brevi clutch this season that's been a dud. Um, and yeah, um, what else? The, all the Cordo eggs I've got so far have been pretty good. Um, but I would say that the Barichi are probably the hardest to breed I've found. And it might be just because I'm keeping them wrong. Um, I mean, I got them to lay and got them to produce eggs, or it might be because the male was pretty sick. He might not have just been... He was mating with the female, I saw that. Um, but it might just be that he wasn't able to shoot anything good, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah, but I mean, it's all part of it. And I mean, another big point as well is, I have this discussion with a lot of people, but I think a big part of being able to breed something is just having a good pair. Um, so one of my good friends that keeps dragons, I've been able to breed those dragons for a couple of years now, like that species. Uh, well, he hasn't been able to, and he shot some up to me saying, look, if you breed them, you can keep the adults, and I just want the first clutch out of them. Um, and he, I mean, I've treated them the exact same as how I've been treating my pair, and they're just not breeding. So, I mean, it could be one of those things. It's just, I think it comes down to compatible pairs. And I even ended up throwing one of my males in with the, the adult pair he gave me to see if it did anything, and even then nothing's happening. So it could just be a dud female, who knows. And I've had that before with Jackie Dragons, actually. Uh, I should say, oh, I've got Jackie Dragons and Mountain Dragons as well. They're another one on the dragon front I have. Um, but for two, three years, I was trying to breed Jackies, and I kept getting dud eggs each year, put a new male in, and suddenly 30 viable eggs each season. There you go. Um, what's your philosophy with keeping the monitors and the dragons? Is it hands-off or handling only when you need to, or...? Yeah, how do, how do you... Oh, definitely. I'm definitely um, hands-off, I guess. I mean, I think it's important to do health checks and things like that. Um, anyone that's had anything go wrong with reptiles knows that... I mean, there's a whole sway of the things that can go on. You can have something that just hits rapidly and something gets sick and is really hard to recover. But things um, that, you know, if you pick them up early, like, say, gradual weight loss or... Um, even like early stages RI, it's so much easier to treat than um, letting it go down the tubes, you know. So I think it's really important to make sure you stay. And especially like someone like myself, we've got quite a few individuals. 
um, it's really important to just keep an eye on everything and make sure you've got all the health sorted. Um, because if you, you know, if you, you're keeping on top of the health of everything, I mean, that's, it's easy to maintain a lot of adults. Um, it's hard to maintain adults and baby, like it's harder to maintain adults and babies. And it's hard when things go wrong when you've got both of those going. So if you stay on top of it all and make sure that everything's healthy and if something starts to go down, you know, starts to get sick or whatever, you get it addressed quickly and get it fixed up quickly. It's much easier to resolve than letting it go down. And so for that, with that sort of uh, stance of things, um, I, I promote a hands-on approach. Um, so I'll occasionally through winter, I do like checks cause I do a pretty hardcore cooling with a lot of my animals. So I'll turn off all the heating entirely for yep. quite a few species, bar tropical species. Um, and with those guys, I'll go through and just pull them out of their rock crevices or lift up hides or whatever, and just go check them and make sure that they're all going well. And I mean, that all comes from experience. I mean, I had someone say to me, oh man, you're just going so well this season. I mean, a lot of people don't see the things that don't go well. So like uh, the male Barici um, started to get a minor RI this season. I was treating him the exact same with both the girls, but he just started to get an RI. So I got him to the vet. Got him a month's worth of Fordham injections. After two injections, he was fine. Did the rest of the treatment. Um, one of my minor minor, same sort of thing just happened. But the other three in the tank were fine, but one of them just started to get a minor RI. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things, you know, I promote fairly hands-on with that. But with that said, with a lot of species, what I keep is stuff that hates being touched. Um, a lot of them are really antisocial animals, so I just leave them in their tank to do what they want. Um, pull them out when I need to just check that they're okay. Yep. I mean, it's different to people that keep like bearded dragons and stuff that don't don't care if you handle them. They really just are impassive and indifferent and things like that. But a lot of the small dragons will never make good traditional pets, you know. Yeah. Even a lot of the small monitors, um, even Aki's, like you know, an Aki behaves completely differently to a bearded dragon in the sense that it doesn't it doesn't just sit there relaxed most times. Some Aki's do, but bearded dragons as a whole, you're lucky to find a good multi generation bred captive bearded dragon that you know won't just sit on you i mean i've even picked up wild bearded dragons that just sit there and they're like eh, you know like so yeah and um what other species have you got or what other uh groups of animals are you working with that aren't just the monitors and dragons um so i've got skinks geckos and tiger podids which i guess are geckos um as well um, oh, I should say on monitors, I've also got stores monitors. I've got Story Ocreatus, um, which were bred by Rob Grabowski. Great guy, great, great keeper, knows his stuff. Um, so, yeah, um, with the, the skinks, um, I've got Cunningham skinks. I've got a couple of Eastern blue tongues, a um, pair of male Western blue tongues, um, which are cool. I mean, I really, I like the Westerns. They're nice looking animals. Um... So I've got those guys. Um, I've got the Modesta, Eastern Range Rock Skinks. They're probably my favorite skink species, actually, um, that I keep. They're really, really cool animals. They're really nifty, um, and they're really adorable. Um, so they're cool. The uh, I've got Sand Swimmers, Broadbanded Sand Swimmers. Um, they're a fun species to keep. Um, but there's nothing too crazy with them. And yeah, that's about it on the skink front, I think. Um, oh, did I say the Cunninghams? I've got a pair of Cunninghams as well. Yeah. Um, probably my parents' favorite animals, actually, those Cunninghams. <laughs> um, but they're a nice pair of those. 
Um, then yeah, on the Pygopoded front, I've got a female scaly foot called Dinkleberry. She's pretty good. Um, a male Eastern hooded scaly foot called Dr. Shrades does what a scaly foot does. Scaly foots are really underappreciated animals. They're really, really good captives. Um, and I, I think a lot of people would really enjoy them if they decided to keep them. They're not super readily available, but they're definitely out there and there are definitely people that breed them. Um, I've also got a Burton's again. So I kept Burton's a while ago, um, ended up moving. Well, I moved a couple on and then I actually had a few die. So I, I gave some to somebody to watch and they got a little sick and some recovered, some didn't. Um, but they are a fairly high maintenance species. Um, well, they're not they're not super high maintenance. Husbandry wise, other than diet, they're as easy to keep as knobtail geckos. Um, really, really simple animals. It's just that you've got to feed them skinks, which I never actually did. I, when I kept mine, um, I was put onto it by the person I, I got them off how to tube feed them. So I tube fed them. Um, they bred under that mix, so I got uh, egg and hatched that out. And then, unfortunately, with that baby, I did struggle to keep it on the tube mix. Um, so I tried pinky legs and things like that. And yeah, it went. It unfortunately didn't make it either. Um, but yeah, so after that, I kind of decided. Um, Burtons are, were a high maintenance species for me, especially with a lot of other things. Um, and I wasn't really going to get back into them. And then a friend of mine decided he was going to sell his Burtons and said, if you want this Burtons, you can have it. So I was like, well, I really enjoy keeping them. They're a really good species. So I thought I'd give it a crack again. Yeah. And no intention of breeding it or anything, just give it a crack with the Burtons. So yeah, I got those. Uh, geckos, I've just got knobtail geckos. Um, they're all right. Um, I don't mind knobtails, but I'm, I'm sort of just keeping around because they're older animals now and they're, they're good friends and they're like, you know, good pets and stuff, but I'm not really giving a, a solid intention to breed those guys. Um, if they lay eggs, they lay eggs. If not, they don't. Um, what is cool, actually, tomorrow morning I'm picking up a pair of cave geckos, which I'm really excited about. Um, so they're a species I've been kind of interested in keeping for a while and uh, a friend of a friend or a friend got in contact saying he had a friend that was looking to sell some cave geckos. And I was like, oh, sweet. I'll snap those up. So picking those guys up, which would be quite cool, along with a few other geckos and some skinks. Um, so, yeah, I've got, the, I've got the Elderi. I really like the Elderi. They're really cool. Um, and Strafura ciliara, so the Northern Spiny Tails. Got a pair of those bred by the wonderful Rick Worthy. Um, man knows his stuff on geckos, hands down, one of the best. Um, but yeah, so I've got a pair of the spiny tails and they're, they're probably one of my favorite geckos too. So those guys along with the elder eye are pretty cool. Um, so yeah, that's the geckos. And then other than that, I've just got, um, a couple of frogs. So I've got a white lip tree frog and then I actually got some, uh, Eastern froglets from a mate, um, recently. So his one's bred, um, and he just said, do you want some some of the morphs? And, you know, they're tiny. They're like, I can't even really give them give them perspective, but they're some of the smallest animals I've ever seen. <laughs> yep. Uh, we've got a question here um, from Jamison yep. who says, uh, in depth, uh, in an in-depth look at how you keep uh, adult crested dragons, ones, uh, just wanted to see how you keep the adults husbandry-wise. Yeah, sure. Um, I'll just, I actually keep them upstairs and I'm downstairs at the moment. Uh, so I'll just quickly 
head up there. Yeah. So. And um, while you're going, there's another question that says, um, do you know what area or form the ca giant cave geckos are from? Or are they from WA? Uh, so giant, uh, giant cave geckos are Northern Territory. Um, so they're around, I think, the Darwin area and up near that sort of part of the NT. So at the moment, what I've got my crested dragons in is just this standard uh, three foot. Uh, so it's a three by 60 tall by 45 deep with a background, a tile stack, water bowl and some food. Um, and here's one of them sleeping on his little log. If I've got him. There he is. Um, then for lighting wise, I've got a T5 uh, Arcadia 14% UVB tube. Um, and then just a standard 100 watt incandescent. Um, when I bred those guys last year, um, I actually had them in an indoor pit um, upstairs and basically had them under mercury vapor globes um, suspended from the pit. And the reason I ended up actually pulling them out was because uh, one of the males, so I've got two males and a female in there, uh, one of the males figured out how to start jumping out of the pit. So <laughs> long term, it wasn't a good solution for them, unfortunately. Yeah, and... Um, um, but yeah, so... Did you end up putting anything else in that pit or just decide to scrap that idea? No, no, so I, I like the pit. So uh, what I actually did, those pits are made out of 1,000-litre water containers that we just cut in half. Um, they come with a bracing frame, so we put that bracing frame around to hold the sort of integrity of the pit. And then the long-term idea was to get pallets and uh, sort of cover them up with a varnish and put it around the edge to make it like a nice rustic wood finish. I uh, haven't got, quite got to that stage yet, um, just because I was waiting on a mate to help me out with it. Um, but yeah, so in the pit at the moment, I've just got some adult central bearded dragons. So I think I've got uh, three females and a male in there now. Yeah. And they go fine. So it's a one and a half meter by 1.4 meter, I think. Something like that. I can't remember the exact measurements. Yeah. And... Um... With the other species that you've got, what are you breeding out of that lot? Uh, so, um, from the geckos, I guess. So, I'm not breeding any of the legless lizards. Um, I mean, it's one of those things I'd probably potentially consider trying to breed the... Um, the common scaly foots. Um, I don't really want to try and breed the Burtons again just because it's so much effort um, trying to keep those hatchlings. And I mean, again, on top of everything, like um, I'm doing PhD four to five days a week, doing, I'm working a day of the weekends most of the time. Um, and then I spend a lot of time in the evenings and stuff trying to maintain these guys or, you know, doing normal social human things um, or trying to go out herping as well, which are finally being able to get out and do again. Um, so, you know, it's one of those things where I just try and make the tactical decisions of if it's a really high-maintenance species or it's going to be an effort to maintain the hatchlings of, um, it's probably not worth trying to breed at the present, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and there are definitely people like uh, up in Queensland, there's quite a few people that breed Burtons relatively well. Um, and one of the reasons being is that they've got um, access to the legal wild collect feeder skinks up there. So there's six species of skinks they can collect, plus Asian house geckos, plus everything like that. Um, so, I mean, you know, that, that definitely does help with it. Um, but yeah, so I don't really intend on breeding the, the legless lizards. 
gecko wise it'd be really cool to try and breed the elder eye um so i've got uh, i think it's four females and a male uh three males um and uh yeah so it'd be cool to see if they breed um but i haven't had much success with them but i've only had them for six eight months now um so yeah from those guys with the skinks i'm not really trying to breed any of the skinks and um i'm not really super familiar with the sexes i've got a one of the blueies i paired up just because i'd like to try and i think it'd be really fun to try and breed some of the live bearing species so i've never bred a live bearer before so i mean i think my cunninghams are a sex pair but i got no 100 percent clue on that so it'd be nice to try and breed them um and i've also um the blue tongues so yeah yeah i've got a pair of blue tongues would be kind of cool my westerns are both males unfortunately so i got them sexed by a vet and the vet reaffirmed my opinion that they were both males so um you know if a female pops up i might get one um but i'm pretty prude so mine are south australian locality um so i probably like to maintain them as south australians but they just run around and do their thing and they're, they're nifty little lizards so yeah so i'm not really trying to focus too much on those i mean i've got a lot of species that i probably don't promote that much that i don't really try and breed so like the sanguinas you know it might be cool to breed and i've got a mate who's got a female and we've been talking about possibly pairing them um but yeah it's one of those things it's not super high on my agenda i guess um it'd be cool to do and it's one of those things but it's also making some of these decisions i mean in my opinion getting eggs isn't the hard part it's rearing them maintaining them and moving them on to somebody that's actually going to try and do good by them yeah like everyone makes mistakes and you know can stuff up keeping but intentionally selling something to someone that's going to just kill it through neglect or stupidity is like a pretty bad move in my part yeah and um with the other species other than dragons and monitors um are there any that you really, really want to get, or any morphs that you would like to own that you don't currently? Um, so I guess a monitor, I don't know if I said a monitor species, but a monitor, oops, did that. Oh, that's still going. Uh, monitor species, I really want to see um, more widespread in New South Wales, and I definitely want to get some. Uh, rusty monitors, I freaking love those things. They are super cool. Um, so definitely, definitely want to see them get around down here. Um, for non-dragon species, um, some of the, I guess, uh, some skinks I think would be pretty cool, uh, some of the Agurnia ones. Um, so, I mean, I, I'm, yeah, I, well, I'm actually in that uh, purchase tomorrow where I'm getting those cave geckos, I'm also getting a trio of depressor. So that'll be pretty cool. Um, but yeah, some of the other Agonia like uh, McPhee I really like. So I've seen quite a few wild McPhee and become quite quite attached to them. Some of the Black Rocks. Um, so I, I quite like the Agonia and Lyophilus groups. I think they're quite cool. Um, I wouldn't mind at one point trying to keep some of the small pointless skinks like Marethia or uh, Lamprophilus or one of those guys. I think that'd be really nice, easy to set up with just like a low maintenance bioactive or something. Um, and then I've also been talking with one of my mates. I'm kind of tossing up with the idea of, um, I've got my, what my angle heads are. Oh, I've also got angle head dragons. They're ones I forgot about. Um, with angle heads, I've got them in a like four by four um, by two foot deep um, glass tank, which is fully bioactive and 
you know, cleans itself and basically all I do is put in uh, black soldier fly larvae for them to eat. Um, or um, tong feed them woodies or something like that occasionally. Um, but I would like to try and get some skinks in the bottom there to run around in the sort of leaf litter at the bottom. So one of my friends has, um, oh, I'm having a mental blank on their name. Uh, one of the rainforest skink species. Uh, it's a consinia, I think it is. Consinia, not amplus. Um, I can't remember. One of the one of the rainforest skink species, but they'd be really cool to just throw in the bottom and have run around. And I think they'd get on okay with the um, the angleheads pretty well. Yeah, and um, what are your views with cohabbing? Do you like the idea or is it dependent on size and things? Uh, so I cohab a lot of stuff. Um species and uh, individuals and things like that. I'm for cohabbing, but I'm also very well, uh, I think it's really important to acknowledge the species differences, the individual differences and the potential that something will always, well, the potential that exists that something could always go wrong um, and that it does happen. And I mean, it's something a lot of people have to take, take on board. And uh, I guess like really good examples are the, some of the reptile vets have been posting recently where you have um, bearded dragons that have been housed together for four or five years and then suddenly one chomps the other one. Yeah. Um, I think to a degree there's, I've had animals where that's not happened, but like there's been signs that they're going to start fighting and I've got spare space where I can put them in and take them out of the enclosure and separate them and treat them differently. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of people don't, don't keep on, keep in their mind. Um, so for instance, the breachy group I had when I started getting that male on antibiotics, um, he just went into this feral state and was attacking both the females. And so I had to pull him out and while he was on antibiotics, I kept him separate, then put him back in with the girls and he went back to normal. Um, I've had issues where I've had my Jackie dragons together for about four or five years now that pair um, and last season the male just savaged the female and damaged a tail and uh, a few other things like that so I mean you know you've got to be prepared for those risks and I mean a lot of people do cohab and a lot of very experienced keepers do cohab um, and there's just so many elements to it but it's, it's not a I don't think it's an evil thing to do I think it's something you should take on board with experience like I started off with only housing things in either like pairs or whatever. There's some species I'll house in trios or more. There's some species I'll house in groups. There's some species I think housing more than two individuals is a bad idea. So at one point I had seven pictures together and I noticed they all started losing a lot of weight. So I split them into two different tanks. And they all started punching weight on and getting back, back to their normal size. Um, I used to keep trio, four, four uh, male and three female knobtail geckos together and found that some of them weren't going as well. So I split them out into small groups and then sold off some of them and things like that. And I mean, like I, I made sure they're all healthy, obviously, but like, you know, I think there's a few species where they don't go particularly well. I've spoken to people that keep AMEA that say that AMEA do better or pairs or trios. They don't do well in more than three. Um, and then the other thing, seasonal differences. So obviously as breeding season comes around or as things slow down or as food changes or as whatever, um, you know, things that have been cohabbing well can suddenly flip on each other, start fighting. Um, and yeah, so 
one of my biggest peeves is when someone that's never kept a reptile before wants to keep three or four bearded dragons um, in the same tank. And, you know, they're using a compact spiral globe for UV and, you know, a heap of other things like that. And they're not giving them enough heat. Um, and I think with things like that, you know, you've got to really consider why would you sell them multiple animals? Like if they lie to you and you don't know what's going on or something like that, or they say they've got multiple tanks or they bought animals or someone else or whatever, you can't control that. But, you know, if they're not a well-equipped person or well-informed person about how to care for them, it's kind of a bit hard to say, yeah, okay, I'll sell you multiple animals. And I see that big time with bearded dragons because people are like, oh, they want friends. Um, and I was like, oh, well, A, they don't need friends. If you want to keep them together, you know, these are the moves to make, but I don't recommend it. And for the first time keepers and new keepers, I don't really support it either, actually. As you start developing experience, knowledge, skills, all that sort of stuff, go for it, for dragons at least. Um, and I mean, like I know some really, really good keepers that just keep colonies of things like, you know, 10 plus geckos in an enclosure or 10 plus um, skinks. Um, I think the most species I've got in one enclosure other than hatchling tubs would be seven, I think. And I mean, I do quite a few different cohabs now that I do spe uh, species cohabs. So I've done brevi quarter in Western Netherlands, brevi quarter in Central Netherlands, um, Pictus, uh, Western Netherlands and Crested Dragons of the same size, um, Jackie Dragons and Red Bard Dragons of the same size. Um, not that I did that long-term. I, I like keeping things in sort of their different geographical niches, but that was more of some yearlings I was sort of splitting out. Um, and yeah, I guess the other thing you also got to be careful of is accidental hybridization. So I always, I try and make sure there are things that won't accidentally hybridize. So I don't keep Western netheds with Central netheds because I don't want hybrids. Um, try and keep them across different um, genuses or even families if I can. I mean, there's some really cool cohabs I've seen online too. So I've seen people house legless lizards with brevi quarter and things like that, and they go great. So, um, and then yeah, obviously you've got a size match, you've got a personality match, you've got to do all that sort of stuff. So yeah, but I think it's it's I think a really fun part of the hobby, especially uh, with these sorts of things as well. You need a good sized tank. Like you can't just expect to throw 50 lizards in a tiny tub and hope that they get on well. You know, you've got to give them spots to run away from each other and uh, little nooks and crannies. And I think. One of the best things I recommend to a lot of people um, for a lot of species is to get leaf litter, uh, particularly monitors. It's really good for them because crickets and cockroaches and all that sort of shit will bury into the leaf litter. And monitors are really good at sort of sensing out and finding those. But it also means particularly with small species, they can burrow down into the leaf litter and hide from each other or sort of get a bit of comfort. So I'm quite a big fan of using leaf litter. Yeah. Um, that's all for my questions. Now I will throw it over to the stream. If you've got any questions for Mitch or me, feel free to go ahead and ask. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that I want to ask. <laughs> um, no, no, shoot. Hmm. Hmm. Let's go with a different question. Um, with the monitors, uh, other than the rusties, yep. is there anything else that you would want to be want to get? Uh, yeah, so I guess another monitor I'd be pretty keen for is actually Varanus Aremius, so the Rusty Desert monitor. Uh, <laughs> I guess it's basically Rusty monitor. Nah. Um, yeah, no, I quite quite like to keep Aremius. I think that'd be really cool. Um, and, I mean, there's a lot of other monitors I think it'd be really fun to keep, but in all honesty, I probably wouldn't be prepared to pay what they're required to be bought. Um 
or I, I don't really have the facilities. And I guess like, as I'm sure a lot of people watching and a lot of people that know me have realized I've got quite a few animals. Um, and there comes a point where you've got to realistically draw a line in the sand. Like I can stay on top of what I've got now and I put a lot of time into it, but it's one of those things where I want to maintain all aspects of my life. You know, like I have friends, family, things like that. And definitely my animals are a big part of it, but you know, you can't get to the point where you have just an obscene amount of animals. Cause I mean, the reality is, and a lot of people don't realize it, but you can get prosecuted by the RSPCA. Um, and it can become like an animal hoarder. And I'll, I'll be honest in saying even meetings I had with OEH, I told a few people from OEH how many animals I had and one of them called me an animal hoarder. And I admit I was pretty pissed at her comment. <laughs> um, cause she doesn't know anything about what I've got, but anyway, that's a different story. Um, but yeah, so it's one of those things where like, you know, and it depends on species. There are some species where you can have squillions of animals and they're a lot more low maintenance. Um, than other other species. Dragons, in reality, are probably one of the high, most high maintenance. Most species are purely insectivorous, so you've got to have insects available all the time. They're high cost, so they need to have any real good success with dragons. You need to have good quality lighting, good quality heating, things like that. Um, so yeah, with all that, I'm just saying I've, I'm definitely cautious about what I get. But with that said, in the dream world, I would love to have some Gleba Palmer. I think they'd be really nice to keep. Um, supposedly a lot of the, the ones around at the moment are flooding angry things that suck. It'd be cool to keep. Um, the Pilbara monitor species would be cool to keep. So, you know, Pilbarensis and Hamelansis would be quite cool. And they're very, very pretty lizards. Um, I've, I've been trying to chase Mitchellai for a while now and people with them won't sell them, generally speaking, which is fair enough because they're, they're pretty hard to come by. But Mitchell I'd be another one in the dream world to keep. Um, Bush Eye, um, Gill and I, you know, all the, all the monitors are actually really good. I can't, I go through this whole list and most of most of the small monitors, I think it'd be awesome to keep. Oh, and like, I mean, in all seriousness, uh, Crassness would be cool to keep. Um, I think they're very interesting sort of monitor species, like, you know, their arboreal nature and the fact they're a canopy goanna. Um, you know, Keith Horneye, I don't think there's any legal captives out there, but if Keith Horneye were out there, they'd be pretty cool to keep too. Um, I don't really have a big interest in a lot of large monitor species. I mean, I've got a, a few, I guess, medium and large species at the moment, but I don't have a wide ranging interest in them. So I don't really, I can appreciate Indicus and I think they're really cool. Wouldn't want to keep them. Same with Dorianus, want to keep them, but I think they're cool. Um, Spencers, again, think they're super cool. Know a lot of people with Spencers, think they're really cool, but don't want to keep them. Um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of my monitor interests. But, yeah, I'd say probably top of the list other than Rusty's uh, would probably be either Aremius or Mitchelli. Yep. And uh, Cooper has, has asked, how's taming the evil Lacey going? Still an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> he's, a, he's a nasty piece of work. Mm. Um but he's, he's growing, he's eating, and he's sort of getting better. He is getting a little better, like before he was a real body sort of strikey thing, and now he sits out and watches and things like that. And I just upgraded him as well, so I've just put him in a 4x4. Four four. Yeah, the experiences that I've had with lace monitors, they always know if it's somebody new that's trying to pick them up. Because, like, the ones that I've dealt with have all been yeah. at wildlife demos. So they're like, wait a minute, this isn't the normal person. What are you doing? And then they start thrashing around and everything's like, just calm down a little, please. 
Yeah, and I mean, like, the thing with a lot of wildlife ones as well, like, I've got friends who are demonstrators that have laces, and a lot of them are usually the most chill of the laces. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, they're usually very, very good behavior laces. So, um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're cool animals. I Don't get me wrong, but, yeah, I... There seems to be a real big interest in a lot of people wanting to keep them, and I think a lot of people jump into that a bit too hardcore. And I know in Victoria, I think you guys have them on basic license even. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've had discussions up here because particularly with the licensing changes through New South Wales, um, they're looking at the other states. And in all seriousness, by the other states, they mean mainly Queensland they're having discussions with. Um, and so Queensland and New South Wales are trying to bring their systems closer together. Um, Victoria, they've sort of made some questions about they don't particularly care too much about WANT. And there's a bit of, bit of interest in South Australia, but not too much. Um, but with that in South Australia, uh, sorry, with uh, Victoria, one of the things they brought up is, you know, how to get a lapid, your lapid license down in Victoria is pretty simple and much more clear cut than New South Wales, uh, much more clear cut than Queensland, as I understand it too. Um, and the fact that some species are on basic license, which do seem a bit insane, like Lacey's. But with that said, some people really do, like I've spoken to people that their first monitor they kept was a Lacey. Um, I mean, each their own, but I guess it's, you know, from the position of a, a government regulator, you got to think that this is going to be a large animal that can inflict serious harm and the potential of people buying them and going, oh, great, it's now two metres long. Um, what am I going to do with it? How am I going to house it? I know I'll just throw it in a four-foot tank. You know, a lot of things like that. And, I mean, that's it's probably, like, all this, like, all the stuff I've been involved in this review with has been quite interesting because you really start to get a more well-rounded perspective of everything that goes on into the licensing. And even the funny thing is, is a lot of people in New South Wales in OEH's side of things think that a lot of our things in certain categories are a bit of a joke too. Like some species that are in, say, our R1 category, they think should be in R2. Some they think in R2 should be in R3. Some that are in the R2 should be in R1. Like, you know, rough-scale pythons, for instance, they are so common nowadays it's just the fact that they haven't been addressed again, that they should get bumped down. Um, so, yeah. But, no, I think Lacey's are one of those species that um, are a little bit more edgy than people realise. Mm -hmm. Not to say that there aren't good ones and things like that, but I don't quite get the, the massive fixation both in Australia and across the world. Yeah. And, again, that could be a personal thing with me. I mean, I'd much rather prefer small dragons and some of the small monitors, which a lot of people don't really care about, at least on the dragon front. Yeah. Um, am I right in saying that there's Irwin snapping turtles on the New South Wales licences? Or is that something I, I honestly have no idea. I think they might be. Um, I, 100% honesty, I suck with turtles. I know very little. <laughs> Fair um, not particularly a, a reptile group I'm super duper interested in. Um, I dare say, I don't know if it's Irwin's or the other one, um... Abgulia, the the southern one of the snapping turtles, I think, is on our license, but they're very rare. Hi. Yeah. Um. Oh well. If the streamer's got any questions, feel free to ask. Um. Otherwise, I think we can start to wrap it up. If you are happy to do that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm happy to wrap up whenever. Whenever need be. Yeah. Um. There's no more questions. There's nothing really. I just actually just had a scroll back then, um, just with Marek's comment. It wasn't prickly, prickly forest kinks I was thinking of. It was, um, wasn't them.
but it was a different species. I'm having a real mental blank. Um, I want to say Cancinia tennis, tennis, but they're bar-sideds. Um, oh, it's going to really frustrate me now. But yeah, they're just one of the one of the rainforest-king species, but I think they're real, really nifty-looking animals, and they've got some really cool colours. Um, but yeah, but obviously with that as well, I need to make sure that they get on well with the angleheads, and so the angleheads don't chomp them. Um, it's like I've also wanted to consider getting some small frog species and throwing them there, but again, you've got to hope that everything gets together. The other one I've discussed with people is chameleon geckos. I really freaking like chameleon geckos, but the thing that's put me off buying them for two years now, two or three years, is um, I think I'll, in all seriousness, I'm probably not equipped to keep them well, um, just because they are very heat sensitive and I keep a lot of, like this room here would get way too hot for them. They just drop dead. Uh, maybe where I keep my angleheads, they'd be okay, but, you know, and, you know, A, it's an animal's life, and B, it's a lot of money, and C, it's pretty depressing if something dies, so. Yeah, and um, that, I reckon we'll wrap it up here, because there's no new questions. Yeah, thank cool. you, Mitch, for coming onto the podcast. It was a good chat. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, for those that want to keep seeing what Mitch is doing, go and follow Weirds and Beards on Instagram and Facebook. And uh, if you're interested in dragons, the Australian Agamid Facebook group is where Mitch does a lot of stuff there too. Um, and for those that want to see more of Mitch's collection as well, I know Cooper, you're still here. Go and watch Cooper's video on Mitch's collection. It's probably changed a bit since then, but I think that's still a decent overview. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that'll do it for tonight, guys. Um, I hope everybody enjoyed. Stay tuned for the next one, and we'll see you around. Alrighty, and that was the throwback episode with Mitch Hodgson. Um, that was a fantastic episode. I really enjoyed, particularly that last little bit where Mitch was talking about his capabilities to keep certain species and putting the, the animal's life uh, into, into the frame of mind as well. Um, I thought that was really quite quite an interesting perspective. Um, I hope you enjoyed. Um, if you want to see more of what Mitch is doing, obviously, as I said at the end of that episode, uh, Weirds and Beards. Um, if you're after more of what Dane and I do, you can see Dane at Blue Horizon Reptiles and me at Josh's Aussie Reptiles. Thank you very much. Hope you enjoyed. We'll see you next time.